0: Well, if you have your Bible turn to John chapter four, we're going to begin reading in verse five in just a moment. Uh, we're we're continuing a series that we actually started two weeks ago, because uh, last week was Father's Day and so we we kind of did a little detour there. And uh, but two weeks ago we started this series entitled "God of the Mountains," and uh, we we talked in the first week of the series about Mount Moriah, which is the Mount Mountain of Sacrifice and. We talked about the fact that we have to go to the peak of Mount Moriah in our lives and raise the knife of faith and obedience in our lives over those things that stand in the way of our relationship with God. And if you didn't hear that message, I encourage you to go watch it online. You can find it in Facebook, but you can also just go to our website, restorationlifechurch.tv, and all of our messages are there in video and audio format and, uh, and if you missed that one, I encourage you to go listen to that. It's a very challenging message. This week, we're going to be talking about Mount Gerizim. And most of you, may, you may have heard that name, but you don't know what Mount Gerizim is all about. But we're going to be talking about the mountain of pride. The mountain of pride. So read with me from John chapter 4, beginning in verse 5. And this is what it says. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his flocks and his herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, "Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and won't and have to keep coming here to draw water." He told her, "Go call your husband and come back." "I have no husband," she replied. Jesus said to her, "You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had 5 husbands and the man you're now uh, the man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true." Sir, the woman said, "I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is a spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you, am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people come see a man who told me everything i ever did could this be the christ they came out of the town and made their way toward him let's pray together heavenly father so many different hearts each one with its own need here today how can i possibly lord in my flesh and in my own weakness say the things that need to be heard by all of these people only you can do it so lord i humble myself before you come holy spirit If you can use me, I pray that you will. If you can't use me, then, Lord, speak in spite of me. Commune with every every listener deep within the inner man, in the the hidden chambers of each person's heart. Come, Holy Spirit. Come down. Make the Father known to us. Make Jesus known to us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. In this series of sermons on the mountains of the Bible, none will be more puzzling than Mount Gerizim because Mount Gerizim represents in the Old Testament the mountain of blessing. This is the place where Moses was directed by God that as the people of Israel entered into the promised land that, that uh, he should put some of the elders from, the, from some of the tribes of Israel on Mount Gerizim and some elders from Israel on, on, on the Mount Ebal on opposite sides of this valley. And then the people were to pass between those Twin Peaks and as they did, the elders on Mount Ebal were to read out the curses that would come from disobedience. If you disobey God, if you go away from the things God has said to you, there would be consequences. And the, and the, the, the curses are horrifying beyond words. Uh, Things like, may your cattle be cursed, may your sheep be cursed, may your children be cursed, may the land be cursed, may everything bad that could possibly happen to you happen. It's just terrible. And it goes on page after page after page in the book of Deuteronomy. But at the same time. As these elders were reading out these curses, the elders that were on the brow of Mount Gerizim were to read out the blessings of walking in obedience to God. If you obey God and walk as the Lord has told you to walk, if you'll fulfill your covenant of faith with God, then your nation will be blessed. Your homes and families will be blessed. Your land will be blessed. Your livestock will be blessed. Your crops will be blessed. It's so exciting to read the blessings of, of Mount Gerizim. And as the people walk through, it was a symbol to them. You have to make a choice which way will you go. The question for us today is, what happened from that moment until the time when Jesus arrived in the region that had come to be known as Samaria, the center of which was this mountain named Mount Gerizim? Mount Gerizim had early on been a centerpiece of Hebrew thought as the mountain of blessing. It was about 28 over 2,800 feet high. It was, it was 1,000 feet from, from the peak in the, in the valley between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. That's where the modern city of, of Nablus lies, or, or as it's called here in the fourth chapter of John, it's called the city of Sychar. Sychar was six miles from the city of Samaria. And at one point, Sychar was so prominent it became the, the royal residence of King Jeroboam. On Abraham's first visit to the promised land, he came to Mount Gerizim. And the view from that mountain is one of the most beautiful of all Israel. You can can see for hundreds of miles. It's almost as you you can see from Dan to Beersheba, from north to south. And as he stood out there looking on that mountain, looking out over that, from there you can see the snow-capped mountain of of Mount Hermon. it's, It's just a beautiful thing. But not only was it the mountain of blessing under Moses as Joshua brought the people through according to Moses' command, but it also became a place of great historical meaning for the Jewish people because it was there at the city of Sychar that Jacob dug the well that was to bring water to generation after generation. So it, was a, it was, had this high place in Jewish thought. It was this place of blessing and this place of God's presence. So what happened then for this area called Samaria to become so cursed. who It became a, a place of, of racial prejudice between the Jews and the Samaritans, who themselves, by the way, claimed to be Jews from time to time. What happened between the people who were at least in part descendants of the Jews? What happened to cause this division and this anger to the place that when Jesus stopped by the well of Jacob, and remember, God himself is referred to as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And here is sitting at this well as this, he's talking with this woman who is apparently, at least in some way, a descendant of Jacob herself. She refers to Jacob as our father. And yet when Jesus's disciples returned and found him talking with her, it says that they marveled that he even was speaking with her. They were astonished that Jesus would condescend to communicate with the Samaritan woman. This is how tense the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritan Samaritans were. In fact, the, were, the relation was so bad that uh, often Jews used the word Samaritan as a racial slur. They would say, that's why the, the, uh, the Pharisees, when they talked to Jesus, they said, we knew, we knew all along you were demon-possessed and a Samaritan. I mean, it's bad enough to be called demon-possessed, but now they're throwing a a racial slur at you. This is how deep the the hatred was. And in fact, people from Jerusalem would, would travel hundreds of miles out of the way in order to go around the region of Samaria. They would travel far more difficult paths just to avoid going through the area of Samaria. How did it come to pass that Gerizim, this place of blessing, this place of God's presence, and, and, and the surrounding area uh, that later became known as Samaria, how did it become such a place of shocking cursedness when it began as a symbol of all that is blessed? And the answer lies in the meaning of the word pride. You know, the, the difference lies between pride and pride. There's a vast gulf fixed for There are two different kinds of pride, but we in English, we only have one word. So let me explain it to you like this. There's something that you feel when your child walks across the platform as they graduate from high school or or from university. You feel a sense of pride, a sense of accomplishment, a sense of fulfillment, a sense of satisfaction. You are proud. You say, that's my child. That's my child. And there's a sense in which you feel pride when you finish a task or you accomplish some achievement. But the, and those are nothing wrong with that sense of pride. But there's a problem when the pride crosses the line into taking personal praise. When we begin to claim praise for ourselves, then it crosses over into a word that the Greeks use that can also be translated as pride in, 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 in English, but that word is hubris. And hubris means an unwholesome arrogance and that's what's being communicated when people say i don't want to be arrogant but i am proud to be a christian You know, it's okay to be proud to be a Christian. That's not antithetical. Uh, There's a sense in which when we find ourselves in the place of blessing on on the mountain of Gerizim, that we say to ourselves, here I am in this moment of blessing. Here I am in this time of satisfaction and fulfillment. Here I am living in this peace that God gives to me. Here I am blessed and I'm proud to be a follower of Jesus and I'm proud of what God is doing in me in this moment. And I'll explain it to you from the perspective of a pastor. Uh, I've often thought that especially when you pastor a large church with a large facility, that uh, that, that's a very dangerous place because, because listen, I can tell you that any pastor worth their salt, there's a, there's a sense where I feel proud to be pastor of this church. I'm proud of you. I'm proud of this church. And I'd be lying to you if I, I didn't say I have a great sense of joy and fulfillment and satisfaction and, and challenge in serving you as a pastor. But but especially, you know, when you have a wonderful facility and this is a beautiful facility here, uh, even though it's got some of its issues, it's a beautiful facility. But but there is that split second when when we look at that and it's that dangerous, deadly, lethal moment where someone drives into the parking lot and the devil says, whoa, you must be really great, Hoskins. You must be really great. You've arrived now. You you see, pride then gives way to hubris or pride. And when the sense of satisfaction and fulfillment gives way to hubris and arrogance, then the moment of blessing becomes the moment of cursing. Gerizim and Ebel Became the same when the gulf between them is bridged. They become the same when the gulf between them is bridged by arrogance. The the place of blessing and promise historically in the lives of saints in in Scripture has always been the place where the danger of devastation is the closest. When you're at the highest moment, that's the place when you may be ready to face the greatest temptation. You know, this the, the concept, the whole concept of high places in scripture helps us see this. And in and king after king after king in first and second kings and first and second chronicles, you'll find it says things like this. Very often it says something like he did what was right in the the sight of of God. Nevertheless, he didn't do away with the high places. Or it may say something like, he did that which was wrong in the sight of God. He did evil in the the sight of God. And the people of Israel worshipped in the high places. Well, over and over and over again, it references these high places. What does that mean? Well, high places were were commonly used by the people who lived in the promised land before the Israelites moved there. Uh, they They were built, these places were built on the mountains as a place to worship their gods and they built them high because it was a sense of saying our God is above everything else and they they built these places and it was places where they worship their God including things like ritual prostitution and child sacrifices and the Israelites saw these places and they were so high and so beautiful and so magnificent and they wanted them and they began to use those places in an attempt to worship God it's a kind of arrogance it's hubris in worship they wanted to worship Worship in those places because it fed their ego, not because they wanted God glorified or because they were walking in obedience. You see, God didn't want those high places. They did. And they came to the place where they were building monuments to their own egos. And that happens today in churches today where, where pastors build monuments to their own ego rather than doing what they need to be doing in the moment. And, in the, and by doing that, they missed the blessing of God in the very place where the blessing began. And this has happened in entire denominations that began with the touch of God on them. They worshipped in little brush arbors on the American frontier where the power of God was moving in a mighty way and people were touched by God. Thousands of people were being saved during the great awakening and the power of the Lord moved in powerful ways. And then God blessed them and God gave them buildings and land and prosperity. He blessed them and he prospered them. And in the midst of it, they began to believe that they had accomplished all of that. And they began to then pander for the recognition of men. And it still happens today. We have have leadership in denominations and whole denominations that used to be pinnacles and paragons of holiness that now, because they want the approval and the praise of men, begin to compromise on the, true, the, the simple truth stated in the scripture. And that's where pride becomes hubris, where fulfillment and the touch of God and blessing become arrogance and pride. And we have to know that God cannot use us in that moment. It's the most dangerous moment in our lives. You know, we can see it. I've seen strange things happen in American athletics over the past few uh, years, uh, really decades or two. You know, it, it speaks to this issue of what happens at Mount Gerizim. Imagine this in your mind, and this is not hard to imagine because you see it all the time. An athlete makes a great play. Uh, in, in a football game, scores a touchdown, and the crowds are cheering, and the, the, the stands are just going wild, and he crosses the goal line. What does he do? He slams the ball in the ground as hard as he can, and he looks at his competitor, whom he has just vanquished, and instead of showing any kind of respect and recognizing him as a worthy opponent, opponent he gets in his face and says, who's the man in your face? You're nothing. You know, it really wasn't that many years ago That if someone had done that at a sporting event, the people in the crowd would have booed that athlete. They would have booed that athlete, and you know, and just not that long ago. Now, now we are a nation that feeds on arrogance. We feed on pride. We we want the athlete to rub it in and to show poor sport, poor sportsmanship because we don't want to just win. We want to humiliate the enemy. We want to grind the opponent under our heel. So today, it's not enough just to excel. It's not enough to just do do well. Now, now, now I want to say we ought to have a sense of pride. I mean, my goodness, these athletes today—they're amazing. They're incredible. A professional basketball player can jump from half court, do a triple somersault, peel an orange in mid air, and then you know, throw the peel to the sideline, dunk the ball, dive through the hoop, land, and then catch it before it ever touches the ground. I mean, they're incredible athletes. There's no question. But the healthy sense of satisfaction and fulfillment has turned to hubris. It's turned to saying, look what I did. When they did nothing to inherit those athletic gifts, it was given to them by God. There's an arrogance that goes beyond a sense of satisfaction. It goes beyond knowing that, that, that what one does is good. It goes beyond sensing the blessing of God in whatever you do. The moment you reach the pinnacle of your success, you know, we, we, we want you to, to take satisfaction in it. But remember that Mount Gerizim, the the mountain of blessing, is the most dangerous mountain in all of Israel. In our place of blessing, we can begin to think that we deserve it and that we should have much more. It's on the mountain of, of blessing that one has a tendency To say to oneself, I have finally arrived, I I belong here, this is the place of Jacob's well, this is the highest mountain, this is the place where we ought to worship because I need the highest place, I need the biggest place. You know, I'm, I'm here to tell you I'm thrilled to pastor this church, but I have to often pray to myself, God, I don't need this. This is not where I was born. This is not where I saved. This is not where I was filled with the Holy Spirit. This is not the source of my calling. This is not the source, not the authority of my ordination. This is not the, the weight of the, wor- uh, the word. I don't have, th- have to have this to prove ho- who I am. This is not get what gives me value as a person. This is not what gives me the, the great satisfaction of just simply knowing you. I have to remind myself all the time that this being a pastor of this wonderful church is not what makes me who I am in Christ. You see, the most dangerous moment in the world is that moment where you know the touch of God is on you. There's a man you probably never heard of. Everybody heard of Uncle Buddy Robinson? Probably not, because he was a great preacher in the late 1800s, early 1900s. So unless you've read some history, I don't think there's anybody here old enough to remember any of those, you know, 120, 150 years ago. But he was a man of tremendous power. Uh, But he also spoke with a stutter. He had a speech impediment. And he spoke with a a real down-home style and and with great humor. His grammar wasn't always correct. His speech impediment made it hard to understand him at times. In fact, I heard one man telling about the first time he heard a recording of Uncle Buddy uh, Robinson. He was in his 80s by the time this recording was made. It was one of the last sermons he preached. And he actually started listening to to the tape and all of a sudden, this voice comes on and says, Hello there, I'm Uncle Buddy Robinson. And he's like, Oh no, they messed up the tape. They recorded it at the wrong speed. And he took it back and they, they said, No, that's how he really sounded. And so... He went on with that. And, but in one message, he, he, he said this uh, in the middle of all this of his life. He said, sometimes I come off the platform and I'll go out into the streets and where people don't know me. And I hear one man say, I wouldn't give you five cents for that Buddy Robinson. He's just a bum. He can't preach. That silly old man talks funny. I wouldn't walk across the street to hear Buddy Robinson. And he said, then I hear another man say, oh, that Buddy Robinson, he's so wonderful. Buddy Robinson can preach Jesus better than anybody else. Buddy Robinson said, I don't care about that. He said, the people that brag on me don't puff me up. And the people that gossip about me don't puff me down. Because I put all my puffability at the foot of the cross. Isn't that awesome? You see, humbling ourselves at the cross is the only thing that keeps Mount Gerizim the place of blessing where God can go on blessing us, where God can go on pouring out his anointing on us. God God doesn't want to raise ministries up to a pinnacle, you know, to see them blessed and and prospered and strengthened and then see them rise up in arrogance and hubris and sinful, wicked pride and and say, well, now we finally found the peak of Mount Gerizim. We have finally arrived. Look at what we have done. God doesn't want to see ministry reach that place only to have to remove his anointing and watch them crash to the ground. That's not the will of God. The will of God is to raise them from glory to glory to glory. But at each new level, at each new height, they say to themselves, Oh God, this is too high for me. This is too holy for me. I don't deserve to be here. I'm not worthy to be here. God's will for us it, it, to, to, in truth and humility to put our puffability at the foot of the cross and to move on in God's anointing. That's the only way. Otherwise, our blessings become curses and garrison becomes evil. As we go on in this church together, I want you to know I am, I'm seeking and I'm believing God for, for revival. We're seeing stirrings of it. We can see God beginning to do things in hearts. But I'm believing, God, that Sunday morning after Sunday morning, Wednesday night after Wednesday night, in in every one of our connect groups, in every gathering that we come together, that there would be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit with pews filled and lives overflowing with the power of God and miracles, healings, and salvations, deliverances. I'm believing for a revival here. And I I don't mean business as usual. I'm talking about, and I'm not talking about just a full house. I'm talking about revival. But as we seek that, as we seek that, our hearts must be humble before God before we ever foot, uh, place foot to the bottom of Mount Gerizim. Because if we don't, when we get to the top, it'll turn to Mount Ebel before our very eyes. I'm believing God to pour blessings out. I'm believing God to do things that we've never even dreamed of. I'm I'm believing God that we're going to see things we've never seen. And I have a witness in my spirit that God is going to stretch forth his arm and he's going to get glory. But I want you to know the greater that it gets, the sweeter that it gets, the more precious that it gets, the more powerful it gets, the more anointed it gets. We best remind ourselves that we had nothing to do with this. This is the presence and the power and the sovereign move of God and God alone alone it's what God was trying to get across to the church in Laodicea he said you think you're so rich and so prosperous and so strong there's so many parallels between the church in La- Laodicea and Laodicea Re- in Revelation and the American church today but he said to them he said you don't see yourselves the way that I see you he, he says that they need to say I'm wretched and blind and naked and turn to him with that attitude and I'm not talking about a false humility. You know, we, we've all known people like that. Have you ever known somebody that they're like, hum- humble is my middle name and I'm proud of it. You know, you ever known anybody, you know, that, that false humility, humility, I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about a false humility. And you've known people like this, a false hum- humility that pleads for attention where they say, oh, I'm just nothing. I'm so terrible. I'm so bad. God doesn't even love me. And the only reason they're saying that is because they know that people will flock around them and start saying nice things about them. That, that's really more like self-pity than humility. There ought to be a way in which we say, I, I'm so proud to be a follower of Jesus. What that really means is I'm humbled to be a Christian, and I'm so proud of what God has done in me. When, when, I can tell you from my life, when I was nothing, lost and blind and confused. I I had even reached a point in my life where I had denied that I even believed in Jesus. I was running from God. I was destroying my life. I was disoriented and demoralized. I was a wretched, backslidden, depressed teenager. But in the middle of all of that, God found me. I'm here to tell you God found me. He found me and he lifted me up out of the sewers of the universe. And he washed me with the blood of Jesus. And he filled me with the Holy Spirit. And I want you to know that anything he ever does with my ministry from that moment on, I have nothing to do with it. It is all the work of the Holy Spirit. I stand here to tell you that when you say God did use you to do something great, I stand in as much amazement as you. it all belongs to God. You see, history, history is what closed in on Mount Gerizim. You may not know some of the history, but the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and many people were exiled from the land and taken to Assyria. And the Assyrians decided that the only way to destroy the northern kingdom of Israel was to pollute its character, to to literally to try to destroy the soul of the nation. So what they did was they forced the Hebrew women to intermarry with foreigners and they, and they gradually diminished the amount of Jewish blood in the people and gradually they diminished their loyalty to Jerusalem and they gradually diminished their loyalty to the God of Israel. Then later, when Alexander the Great conquered Palestine, a a, a fallen priest named Manasseh, who was involved in an illegal and immoral marriage, came to Alexander the Great and said, and he convinced him to build a temple on the top of Mount Gerizim, and, and he convinced him then to make him the high priest. And his ministry there became the ministry on the mountain of blessing without the presence of God. It had the appearance of glory, but the reality was, was that of jealousy and envy and pride. And then, when, when later, when Ezra d- began to rebuild the temple, It was the Samaritans from the region of Mount Gerizim who sent a petition and said, we want to come and help. And Ezra said, no, this has nothing to do with you. You're away from God and you'll pollute this. God has put this command on us. We will do this. But then it was the Samaritans who, in jealousy and envy and strife, petitioned the king and got the work stopped. They said, if we can't do it, then nobody can do it. And we've seen jealousy, envy, and strife between ministries. Listen, I... I love the Assemblies of God. I grew up in the Assemblies of God. It is my home. But I want to say something to you. Listen, there is no place in all of Scripture where it says, go into all the world and make Assemblies of God of every creature. When we begin to turn our eyes in on ourselves, when we begin to allow that narrow-minded spirit to dominate, when we allow that competitive, jealous, envious, strife-filled spirit to come in on us, then we are in trouble as a denomination. And I, I believe, listen, I believe that God is with us in the Assemblies of God. And I'm excited to be part of it. I I sense a revival heart in the Assemblies of God and and I'm thrilled to be part part of it. God is pouring out blessing on us from church to church and city to city, from state to state, from, from nation to nation. The denomination is growing and we're blessed of God. The fact is we are going straight up the side of Mount Gerizim. Every blessing we could imagine is being poured out on the Assemblies of God. But oh God, don't let it happen that we in the midst of all that fall. To the sin of hubris, and begin to say that we have a higher and bigger and grander and more glari- glorious, and, and that and and then to become flesh-oriented and shallow and superficial and fall to sin in the midst of God's blessing. I believe that God wants to bless us more than we've ever dared to think or imagine. I believe that that the anointing of God for us is greater than is yet to come. I believe that the latter rain will be greater than the former rain. I believe that with all my heart. But I want you to know that every new blessing brings new responsibility to turn in humility and give God glory for his blessings. When the Assyrians... When they were killing the Jews, the Samaritans living in the region there, they said, hey, we're Assyrians, you don't kill us. But when Alexander the Great declared a year of jubilee in Israel and released all the Jews from Greek taxes for one year, now all of a sudden they said, hey, we're Jews, so we don't have to pay taxes either. Here's what I want you to know. Deception always follows pride. Deception always follows pride. They, they claim to be that which they were not, and they claim, then they claim not to be that which way they were. And whenever we begin to vaunt ourselves, to lift ourselves up, whenever we begin to think that we are more than we are, then we have to convince ourselves and convince other people that we are what we say we are, and we as human beings will do it in any way that we can. If we're filled with pride and arrogance, will do anything to keep up the appearance, to keep up the deception, to keep up the manipulation. Listen, this is just, just a word of caution. And I, and I want you to know, I, I, I believe in signs and wonders. I want to talk about that moment for a moment. I believe in miracles. I believe that God can do anything. But I also want you to know, I have put my faith in the God of miracles. I have not put my faith in the miracles of God. If you make miracles the miracles of God, what defines us as a church, then here's what hap- what's happens. What happens is you have signs and wonders and miracles five Sundays in a row. And you say, this is what we're based on. This is who we are. We're a church that has signs and wonders. When you stake your identity on that, then what happens on Sunday number six when, the, when there are no signs and there are no wonders? Do you know what happens? What happens is that if you've staked your reputation on signs and wonders and there are no signs and wonders, then God help us, you'll either say that there are signs and wonders when they aren't, or you'll try to manufacture them. We've, we've seen this. You know, Dr. Mark Rutland, one of my favorite preachers, he preached at a, uh, the, the uh, Northern California, Nevada District Council one year when we were pastoring in Reno, and Reno is part of that district. And And in that message, he told a story that kind of helps illustrate what I'm talking about. He and his wife traveled to a conference, and it was a big conference. He was one of the speakers, but there was another speaker there that was a a very famous, exceedingly famous preacher. And Dr. Rutland, he was kind of early in his ministry, and he was so excited to meet him and excited to get to know this this man. He had heard of this man's ministry, and he was just thrilled that he was going to be on the same platform with this great man. He just, he just wanted to rub up against him and, 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 you know, get some of that anointing a little bit. Well, Dr. Rutland preached on Thursday night, and the other man was to preach on Friday night. Well, Friday afternoon, Dr. Rutland was in the auditorium, sitting on the steps and just chatting with some of the men. And this, this man came in with his entourage. He had about five people that were with him, and they all came into the auditorium. And he walked in, and he said, all right, let's just get a few things cleared. And he pointed up to the balcony and, and he said, the first thing I, I want you to know is I want a spotlight right up there. I never preach unless there's a spotlight on me. And Dr. Rutland said, suddenly it was like day had dawned. He said, I saw it. I wondered all those years what was missing in my ministry and suddenly I saw it. The reason I had no anointing was because I had no spotlight. Well, the famous preacher went on. Furthermore, my sound man runs the sound booth when I preach. He knows what makes my voice sound the best, so you can have your sound man uh, uh, for everything else. But when I stand up to preach, you step aside and this man will take over. He said one other thing. He said, I don't sit in here for an hour long worship service before I preach. He said, I wait in a wet ready room until it's time for me to preach. Five minutes before it's time for me to preach, send somebody back there to get me and I'll go straight to the microphone. He said, I don't sit out here on the platform with everybody else. Well, you know, Dr. Rutland says he should have seen it right then. But as a young minister, he was so naive and innocent and guileless. He he thought to himself, well, you know, he's been doing this for a long time. Maybe this is what it comes to when you get to that place. Well, the meetings were being held in a in a flat hotel ballroom, very huge, large, huge room. Three thousand people sitting there in attendance, and uh, and it wasn't an elevated. You know, like a theater or a lot of churches, they have the where it's elevated. So if you sit further the back, you're you're raised up, so you can see what's going on in front. But on a flat floor in a large room, you can't see what's going on in the very front, can you? And so they they were there, and they have this this uh, this huge crowd, and and only about 150 people who, who can, can really see what's going on because they're close enough to the front. And, and that night there was a man in a wheelchair that was brought in, and his body was just twisted like a pretzel. And, and the preacher came in and he got on the microphone and said, God has revealed to me that you're going to get out of that wheelchair. Man, the, the room was breathless with anticipation. Dr. Rutland was sitting up front on on the platform and and, and he he had a perfect view of what was going on and he was just just gasping in anticipation. He leaned up to watch and waiting to see what was about to happen. And at that moment, four of the preacher's assistants rushed over to the man in the wheelchair and they stood there surrounding him and the preacher said, I want everybody just to stand up and let's just start praising the Lord. And the music started playing at a fever pitch. Everybody stood up and then four of of his men lifted that man right right out of the wheelchair, one under each arm and and under each knee, and they carried him around the the front of the room, and his feet never touched the floor. They carried him around the front of that room just like that, and the man in the microphone, this famous preacher, this great preacher, said, he's up, he's up, he's out of the wheelchair. And 3,000 people went crazy for God. And they plunked him right back down in that wheelchair and shot out the side door. And 150 people in the front two rows just sat there stunned because they're the only ones that could see what happened. Dr. Rutland looked at his wife who was sitting on the front row with tears just streaming down her face. And she got up and walked right out the side door. Dr. Rutland just sat there stunned, just staggered at what he had seen. Finally, he got up to his hotel room His wife was lying across the bed just weeping and crying. She looked at him and she said, is this what we're headed for? Is this what we're going for? She said, that man was raped in front of 3,000 people. She went on to say, I don't care about the people that were fooled so much. I don't care about the people that were manipulated. She said, my heart goes out to the man in the wheelchair. What's going on in his soul right now? Dr. Rutland and his wife got down on their knees in that hotel room and prayed, Oh, God, no matter what, no matter where you take us, keep us real. Keep us real. You see, at the very pinnacle of success, at the the peak of blessing, in order to keep the mirage of success, manipulation and deceit are always close at hand. And I want to make it clear. I believe God can raise a man up out of a wheelchair. But we don't have to fake anything. God forbid that we ever do. But you know, before we blame the Samaritans too much, it works the other way as well. Mount Gerizim, the mountain of pride, is also the mountain of prejudice. It went the other way too, didn't it? The, the, The Jews hated these lousy, rotten Samaritans. I mean, they had no character. The bloodline wasn't clean. They had no principles. They had no morals. They were undependable, thieving rascals, the whole race of them. So you see, Mount Gerizim became a mountain of pride in Jerusalem, too. We won't even walk through Samaria. We're too good for that. We don't want anything to have to do with those stinkers. We're too good for them. You know, Jesus, you remember he told the story of the good who? The good Samaritan. Samaritan. And see, it had a kind of a hidden meaning that, that we don't get it as easily here in this room in our culture. It was really, if you want to understand it, it would be like, uh, like Jesus telling it in the room full of the daughters of the American Revolution. And then in the story saying George Washington wouldn't stop to help. And Thomas Jefferson wouldn't stop to help. But Benedict Arnold did. That's what it would have been like. And, and when Jesus told the story to the Jews, the, the, the anger came In the story of the Good Samaritan, the point was not that he was good. The point was that he was a Samaritan. And Jesus is saying to them, essentially, can you do as well as a Samaritan? Can you be as good a Jew as a Samaritan? In our story, the disciples arrive and they find Jesus sitting at Jacob's well talking to this Samaritan woman. And The, the, the disciples stand over in the sideline and it says that they didn't dare ask him what, why he was talking to her. They, they wanted to ask him, but, but they, they've been around long enough now to know that, that you just don't ask Jesus the wrong questions or you're going to be embarrassed. In their hearts, though, they're like, whoa, what's he doing over there? He's sitting talking to that woman. She's not even of our race. Look at that. She doesn't look too good either. Jesus spoke the truth about her life. She'd had a terrible life. He said, "Go ahead and call your husband." You know, Jesus could have just came out and said, "Hey, you know, you're not even you're 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 not even married right now. You're living in sin right now." He could have done that, but he just he wanted to give her a chance to respond. So he said, "Hey, Go go ahead and call your husband. And she said, sir, I I have no husband. Which was, you know, listen, you can tell the truth with the intent to deceive. Do you know that? That's the same as telling a lie, by the way. She told the truth. I don't have a husband. But she left out a lot of information. And Jesus said, that's right. That's right. You, You told the truth you've had 5 husbands and right now you're shacking up with a guy to to whom you're not married right you are when you say you have no husband and her response In her response, this woman turned the tables on history and tradition in one sentence. One second, right there, it all hung in the balance. How will she respond to what Jesus said in that moment? Because she could have said, under the spirit of garrison, in the spirit of, of pride and arrogance, she could have said, you don't know anything about my life. How dare you? You don't know my circumstances. Those guys were all bums. Every one of them beat me. She could have said, you don't have the right to talk to me like that. You don't have a bucket or a rope. Draw your own water. But instead she said, I can see that you're a prophet. You've seen the truth for what it is. You've penetrated the veil of my pride. She humbled herself before Jesus. You know, humility is something that touches the heart of God. When God comes with when that, with that hard touch, that moment of confrontation. And, and nobody likes that moment, do they? I mean, I, I, I love the gentle touch of Jesus, don't you? Don't you? I, I like it when he pats me on the head and says, there, there, Dave. God bless you, son. I love you. I love you. Good boy. That's what I like. I don't like it when the Holy Spirit says, you have sinned, Dave. I don't like that moment. You preach that sermon? You have sinned. Man, I don't like that at all. Am I the only one here that God talks to that way? Am I okay? I mean, I want to make sure I'm talking to the right crowd. But, you know, when when a sermon I hear someone else preach begins to crowd in on me, when a a preacher begins to stomp on me and sort of cleats me as he runs by, man, I don't like that at all. There's something in me in that moment that that I want to retreat to the brow of Mount Gerizim and say, well, you don't understand what, what it's really like. You think you understand, but you don't understand. You know, there was another woman, a Canaanite woman, another Gentile, who came to Jesus and said, Lord, my daughter is demon-possessed. Come and help me, set her free. And Jesus said in response, he said, I don't, I, I don't take the food from the children and give it to the dogs. I mean, is that hard or what? He said, I'm sorry, this is for the Jews. I'm not going to give it to you, Gentile dogs. You know, I, I wonder how I would have responded to that. I wonder if I wouldn't have said, hey, hey look, Jack, The woods are full of rabbis. I don't need this. You know. I'm gonna make my move my membership to another rabbi. That's what I'm gonna do. You've seen the last of me. I I wonder if I wouldn't have just said, well, I never. you, You calling me a dog? You know what? I'm calling the district superintendent tomorrow. You know what she said? She said, You're right. When I look into the holiness of God, I'm hardly more than a dog. I have no pride, but even the dogs get the crumbs that the children drop through the cracks of the table. And Jesus said, I've never seen faith like this. Go home, your daughter as well. She humbled herself before Jesus, and that got his attention. You see that teen- teenager, you know, that's about to graduate and comes into worship service and his mother made him come and she's been making him come since she- he was four years old and he's been angry for 12 years. He's sitting on the pew saying, boy, I can't wait to graduate from high school. That'll be the last night at Restoration Life Church. Oh, man, he's just all swelled up in pride. Oh, I can't wait until next week when, I- when I- after I graduate. My mother's going to say, it's time for church. And I'm going to say, think again, woman. I can't wait. Jesus says, I see your heart, I see your pride, I see your arrogance, I see your rebellion, which is the same as witchcraft. I see your anger, I see your sin. And when he says, Lord, when you say it like that, I feel like such a dog. It's that moment when God says, no, you're not a dog. I wanna give you the right to be a child of Abraham. I wanna take away your pride and give you pride. I wanna take away your hubris and give you the pride of knowing that God is at work in your life. I want to take away your sinful, rebellious arrogance and lift you up and teach you who you are in Jesus. This is the issue in every age. This is the issue in every generation. This is the issue that splits marriages and and rips the heart out of homes and families. It's pride, 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 pride. The teenager who stands up to dad and says, you don't tell me what to do. In that very moment, that that young man enters into the curses of Mount Ebal. But the moment he says, I need direction. I long for your wisdom, dad. I humble myself before you. And he goes to God and say, God, I humble myself in your presence. In that moment, God moves. him back to the place of blessing but then look in response to her humility her humility jesus begins to unfold the secrets of the kingdom to this woman he says things to her that he hasn't been able to say to his disciples yet i don't know if you ever realized this he says to her he says i am the son of god i am the christ he had never once said that to his disciples by the fourth chapter of john that comes later to them She says, I know that when the Messiah comes, he's going to reveal things to us. And he says, I, the one you are talking to now, am he? Now, why would he give her that kind of revelation? He gave her that revelation because he saw the humility of her heart. He saw that she was at the point of brokenness, pride gone, arrogance stripped away, hubris put to death. She was now humble, broken, pliable, and teachable. And he said, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. And faith came into her heart. And she left everything behind. She left her her water bottle behind. She left it all behind and raced back into the village. And she said, I've met a man, man who told me everything I've ever done. Isn't it interesting? That the first evangelist in the book of John was a woman with a sordid past living in the most arrogant, backslidden, spiritually polluted region in the Holy Land. Her humility won the blessing of God. I'm going to close with this. Listen to this. There, there was a church that had just finished a series of revival meetings with an evangelist, and there was a group of people sitting around discussing the revival services and Talking about what had happened and talking about what the preacher had said and that sort of thing. And in general, they were, they were pleased with all that had happened, but there was young man, one young man sitting in a corner, and he had his chair leaned back against the wall and his arms crossed across over his chest, and, and he finally spoke to him and said, I've got something to say. I hated every minute of it. I hated every minute of it. That preacher said, if you want to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, get up and walk down to the front and I'm going to pray for you. That guy said, if you're not sure that you're saved, if you're not 100% sure that your heart is surrendered to Jesus and that your name is in the Lamb's Book of Life, humble yourself and walk up here in front and I'll pray with you and we'll settle it right now. And this young man said, I'll tell you this right now. If walking down the aisles of the church in front of the whole church and pouring myself out at the altar somewhere and praying with some prayer with some strangers the only way to go to heaven, then I guess I'll just go to hell. I heard that story and I thought to myself, you almost certainly will. Someone will ask, is walking down the aisle in a public worship service the only way to get saved? No. No, of course not. But I can tell you this. The thing that will keep you from walking down the aisle in a public worship service is the thing that will keep you from getting saved. See, that won't change. It doesn't have the, anything to do with the context. That has to do with you. That's called pride. But humility says, Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus will make it Mount Gerizim again. He will make it the place of blessing again, even for you, even for the likes of me. Humbling yourself before God opens the door of his blessing on your life. What could be better than that? What could be better than that? Will you bow your head and close your eyes? Heavenly Father, right now in the name of Jesus, we come against every spirit of pride in this place. We thank you that we do have power and authority in the name of Jesus, and we we stand in that authority and, 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 and we thank you, Lord, that the spirit of pride is bound in the name of Jesus. Every religious spirit, every proud spirit, every rebellious spirit is bound in the name of Jesus. Everything that would def- defend opinion over the sovereignty of God is bound in Jesus' name. Every, everything that would vaunt itself against the Lordship of Jesus Christ is bound in Jesus' name. The, the, the spirit of prejudice, which is hatred, which is murder, we bind it in the name of Jesus. The spirit of religious pride, we bind it in the name of Jesus. Pride that ruins marriages and rips the heart out of homes, we bind it in the name of Jesus. Pride that keeps a man in his pew when the arms of grace are being opened to him, we bind that in the name of Jesus. Now with your head bowed and your eyes closed, people around you are praying and they're seeking God. And you say, I've been so proud. I've acted so proudly with my parents. I've I've acted proudly with my boss. I've I've, I've been proud with my employees. I've been deceptive out of pride. I've I've been manipulative out of pride. Oh, listen, the father that, that can't say to his children, I was wrong, I was wrong, please forgive me the woman that can't say to her husband, I was wrong, please forgive me, the employee that that can't humble himself before his boss, I'm going to give you that opportunity to humble yourself now in his presence. Maybe somebody here would say, pastor, would you you pray for me? I've been so proud that I've never really gotten saved. I've come to church, but I've been too proud to admit that I was lost. I've been too proud to to walk the aisle. I've been too proud to really humble my heart and accept the grace of God. And I want to break before him like the woman at at the well. I want Jesus in my heart, just like she received him. That's you, and you say, Pastor Dave, I want you to pray for me. Would you just slip your hand up right where you are? Will you humble yourself in his presence? Yes. Is there anyone else? You can put your hand right back down. Is there anybody else who would say, please pray for me? I've been too proud to give my life to Jesus. But right now I want to humble myself. Yes. Yes, thank you. And put your hand right back down. It's in that humbling of ourselves before him that God moves us into a place of blessing. Maybe you're watching on the live stream and you're there and you say, Pastor Dave, pray for me. Just Put a comment there. We'll pray for you. It's time to stop wasting your life on your own pride. And as we humble ourselves in his presence, he does wonders. Is there anyone else? Anybody else here? Maybe you'd say, Pastor Dave, I want you to pray for me. I I, I have given my life to Jesus, but I have felt that thing in me moving to where I almost feel like I deserve things and I I don't want to move that direction I don't want to lose his anointing on my life if that's you I want you to slip your hand up so I can pray for you yes, yes here's what I want to do I don't think there's any other way I can approach this other than simply coming to you right now and asking you if you raise your hand and you're serious. How about we do this? Just stand right where you are. Just stand right where before, before you are and say, Lord, I humble myself in your presence. Will you do that? Will you humble yourself in his presence? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I want to pray for you. Father, we just thank you for these hearts. Thank you for the humility of honesty. And Lord, I am so proud of them. Because, Lord, they're not not letting anything stand in the way. They're saying, Lord, I want to humble myself in your presence. And right now, God, I pray that anyone in this room that, that doesn't know you, they would just simply say, Jesus, forgive me. I want to humble myself in your presence. And Lord, for those that are saying, I don't, I don't want to slip into, the, into losing the anointing because I've become too proud of, of what I've accomplished. Lord, I pray that wherever we are, that at this moment, that this be a life-change moment for us. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Would everybody stand together with me? It's been a beautiful day, hasn't it? And I know that, you know, that's not a kind of message that you, that you jump up and down and shout, but you know what? I believe where God wants to take us we have to make sure that we maintain an an attitude of humility in his presence because I believe God wants to do wonderful and powerful things in this church and through this church but the one thing that can sabotage that is when we begin to think look what we have done that's why this message is so important for us today I want to pray for you as we prepare to leave this place and ask God's blessing on your life. Lord, we just thank you for your presence and thank you, Lord God, that uh, Lord, you've been so good to us. And Lord, we are humbled in your presence when we realize all that you have accomplished. And we're also humbled, Lord, when we begin to realize all that you want to do. So Lord, keep us in that place of humility. And Lord, I pray as we leave this place that we would walk with a humble spirit, that you would use us to touch the the people around us. Even today, Lord God, there are people who need Jesus. There are people who are hurting and you are the answer for them. So Lord, use us. Make us aware of your presence. Make us aware of the people that are hurting around us. Give us discernment, Lord God. And Lord, I pray that we would walk in your grace. We would walk in your mercy and God bring us together tonight for our men's and women's ministries and let it be a powerful time together. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.